The following message is by Pastor Eric Ludy. More information about the church at Ellerslie is available at www.ellerslie.com. This is serious gospel material. Some of the greatest men and women of the faith that I look up to, that I am charged by and encouraged by, that truly have mentored me throughout the ages, every single one of them dead, This is the truth that they have termed the secret to their entire spiritual life. So we're not talking about a small thing, a little side thing. We're talking about the central issue. What you could term, if we were describing Christianity as a car, you have the shell and the frame of the car, and it can look very nice, have a nice paint job on it, nice wheels on it, uh, nice leather interior, But if it doesn't have an engine, it's not going anywhere. And I can't tell you how many Christians today have polished up the outside and they are so frustrated and they kick their vehicle over and over again because it's not moving. They read scripture and for whatever reason, they can't get scripture to function and mechanically work within their lives. When I, I've described to Ellers, it's described to people interested in Ellerslie what Ellerslie is. Ellerslie isn't training in a, de, a denominational or a specific doctrinal view. It is very specific in its target, which is why we appeal to basically every denomination. Probably even in here today, we have loads of different perspectives, angles, uh, denominational flavorings. But there's certain things we ally on which is what is bringing us together even in a weekend like this. And just the church at Ellerslie in general, you should see all the different perspectives that are coming together. And it's not because we're general in truth and we're just sort of wishy-washy. We don't actually take a stand on anything. We take a very specific stand here. But that stand is the centrality of the Word of God. And the the Word of God trumps every denominational bias. Every one of them. They have to bend their knee to the Word of God. That's what we stand on here. In other words, the word of God reigns supreme, not a denominational bias. And so when it comes to what we are accomplishing at Ellerslie, what we're about, we're not training in auto mechanics. We're not against auto mechanics, which is theology. We're not against that because we do train theology. We train basic auto mechanics, if you will. But what we're interested in doing is dropping an engine under the hood of your car, giving you a key, teaching you how to turn it, Stick it in gear and put your foot on the gas and start moving. That's what we do here. We are interested in Christianity that works. Now, what's needed once you start moving down the road? You need to know how to maintain the engine. You need to know auto mechanics at a certain level. Now, there's certain people in the church that specialize in auto mechanics. Every single one of us needs to know the basics. But Ellerslie's primary function is to train in how to get that engine in the car how to turn the ignition, and how to begin to move. Because as far as anything that matters, it's not how much you know, it's that you're utilizing what is true in your life, what God has revealed to you, and it's working. Who cares if you know about Jesus Christ indwelling if he's not indwelling you? Who cares if you know about salvation if you're not saved? Who cares about head knowledge? There's truth that informs, and there's truth that performs. There's a subtle distinction between the two. Truth that informs is very important in the Christian life. But truth that performs is what we need to start the journey. We need, for instance, if someone were to give a message about repentance and describe the Greek word and the fact that it means to turn, you could have all sorts of information about repentance. But I tell you what, a message that never even uses the word repent but causes the effect of repentance and someone to turn from their wickedness unto light is far more valuable because it is performed in the heart of an individual and not just informed the individual. We need both. There's nothing wrong with knowing about the word repent. But we need the action of repentance more than we need the knowledge of repentance. Satan isn't concerned about you memorizing the entire Bible. I know that sounds a little strange. You know what he's concerned about? You living out one sentence in it. He's concerned about the life lived and not the knowledge. Satan knows the Bible better than any of you. It's not helping him very much. 
He uses it as a tool to batter and to undermine truth. Having head knowledge of the truth isn't what does the rescuing work of the soul. Yielding and giving yourself to the truth and actually acting upon what you know to be true is what changes you. The exchange life is a term coined by a man named Hudson Taylor, the founder of the China Inland Mission. And Hudson Taylor, I remember reading in missionary school that he had a book called, actually his, his, I think it was his, maybe his daughter and his son-in-law that wrote the book called Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret. I was given a book. This is about, I don't know, I want to say 10, 12 years ago now. I, what I represent as far as truth and what I preach is, isn't much different than what I believed years ago. It's not that I've changed. You read some of our early books, you'll, you'll hear the same tones, the same themes. However, there was something missing in the machinery of my life. I esteemed the standard, the high standard of Jesus Christ. And I was willing to do whatever it took to bring it to this earth. I was willing to just continue to stand up against the culture that kept diminishing it. And even within the church saying, no, that's, God doesn't intend you to live that way. He doesn't mean it that way. It's like, it says it in black and white, and I refuse to back down. Here's the problem. I couldn't perform it. In other words, I was more pure than the average guy, but the reasons for that was because I esteemed purity, number one, and esteeming it helps, okay, because you're not going to walk into a den of darkness if you esteem purity and you know that that is opposite of God. So it's going to maintain a certain level of purity just right there. And I had elaborate measures in my life to preserve my purity. In other words, I don't do certain things. I don't look at certain things. I don't go into certain places. Well, you know what? You can maintain an outward level of purity that is rather reputable and impressive at that. And you can stand for something like purity. However, those things will not curb your flesh. And your flesh is still very much alive and ready the moment that there is a breach or a weakness offered in your life. And so there was a frustration in my life because I esteemed certain things. For instance, love. I esteem love. Constantly seeking others' highest good. And then the next thing you'd know, I'd find myself focused on myself again in my situation. At the age of 28, after being in full-time ministry four, five, six years, I don't remember what it had been at that time, found myself in a hospital with a stress disorder. Oh, that's impressive. Does that sound like Jesus? Could you imagine Jesus laying in some hospital in Judea? You know, and he's like, <laughs> you know, and like, Jesus, I don't know how to break this to you, but you have a stress disorder. You're carrying way too much anxiety, man. That's ridiculous. The same guy that says, be anxious for nothing. Give no thought to your life. No miram no at all, not a speck of it, is not going to be in the hospital with a stress disorder. And Eric was. What's wrong with me? It's frustrated, kicking my car. It looked nice, and it had the right detailing. It, it was the way it was supposed to be, and I esteemed the pattern. Something wasn't working. I had a man at that point in my life that I was expressing this frustration to because there was no other voice in Christendom at the time when I was, would express this that would come alongside of me and say, I know exactly what you're saying. Let me tell you something. Everyone was commiserating. They wanted defeat in Eric Ludy's life. Did you just hear what I just said? You know how many leaders wanted defeat in Eric Ludy's life? They weren't cheering on victory. They wanted defeat because what did I represent? The voice of victory and triumph. I was standing saying, I believe it. Well, do you have it, Eric? I'm going to get it. And I refuse to stop until I find it. They wanted me to fail. That's not healthy. It's not healthy when Christian leadership around you wants to see you fail. Because if you succeed and if you find triumph, it's an indictment on everyone else. Remember yesterday, this is to the conferees, I talked about the shovel and digging. You keep digging, get digging deeper and deeper and deeper, everyone around you starts getting mad at you because you're after a promise. They stopped digging long ago. And they see that dirt coming out of the hole and they actually stand over your home like, could you stop shoveling? Why do they care so much? You're shoveling. You go and do what you want to do. I'm shoveling. They get mad because they're afraid that you may find it. And they stopped digging. 
there was a story. Well, this, this man gives me a book, okay? I remember I was in this like little bakery shop with him and he'd heard me talk before and he'd heard the expression in my voice, the tone. He'd recognize that because he had dealt with it too. And he said, you're an A.W. Tozier fan, aren't you? Oh yeah, oh yeah, I love A.W. Tozier. He says, you ever seen this book? Sticks it in front of me. I thought I'd read every A.W. Tozier book. I'd never even heard of this one, The Divine Conquest. No, what is this? He goes, this is the sequel to The Pursuit of God, which is the book that changed my life in, in college. It's like, how come I'd never heard of this? And so I was going to speak at a Bible college in Montana. I took it on the little prop plane. Leslie and I are flying, and I'm like stuck in this book. It took me about an hour to read, a little teeny thing. It was the language of my soul. Basically, A.W. Tozier is saying, have you ever felt this? Have you ever gone to this? Have you ever come to this point of frustration? Do you understand this? Speak in my language. I'm like, yeah, 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 amen. Yes, yes. Well, Eric, he's speaking directly to me, even though he's dead. Eric, I found something, and I want to share it with you. Are you serious? There's truth. A man of God that I respect is speaking to me. It's there. It's real. I knew it. I knew it was real. And he said, I want everyone to know this. I want everyone to taste this. So I get to Montana. There's like three feet of snow on the ground. And I'm stuck in this little cabin. Leslie and I are just there. We had nothing. There's no TV in there. We had, I had my one book and, you know, we had like some, we had a Bible. But you know how you get that sort of cabin fever type of thing? And I heard that they had a library. And so I had, I got on some boots and I'm like trouncing through three feet of snow in Montana to get to this little library. And it had that smell of old books. I love the smell of old books. And I go in there and I was like, oh, what a dream library. It's like my kind of book. You know, I go to other college libraries like, sick. It's disgusting. Come on, where's a good book? Someone who's dead. Give me someone who's dead. <laughs> uh, see, I'm an author, so I can say stuff like that, and I'm still very much alive. Uh, <laughs> and there on the, the shelf, Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret. Spiritual Secret. I read that book. What is his spiritual secret? What is it? I just knew it was the same thing A.W. Tozier was talking about. I knew it. So I pull it off. I go back to the cabin. I'm starting to page through it. I can't find his Come on. I don't want to hear about his life. I already know about that. Where's the secret? Dig way into the, you know, the two-thirds through the book. There it is. It's the same thing. It's the same secret. And so then I remembered, I was talking to Leslie, and I was starting to debrief this. It's like, because it was just bubbling up within me. So I start to get it out to Leslie, because she we've been going through this together. And she goes, you know what? My parents have a book called They Found the Secret, the same word. What I think they would still have that. So I come home, and I'm like, do you guys have this book, They Found the Secret? Well, you could dig through our library. So I go down there, I'm looking, there it is. 20 different people, from John Bunyan to Amy Carmichael to D.L. Moody to Oswald Chambers, all of them testifying to the exact same thing that turned their life upside down. This was the engine. So this is like 10 to 12 years ago. Okay, you need to realize why I'm passionate on this point. I've never given a message called The Exchange Life. This is like bringing it all together after all these years. I want you to know that you could put me in. I wouldn't deserve to be in that book, but you could put me in as 21. And I would testify to the exact same thing. This is the engine. This is what will turn your life upside down. So Hudson Taylor called it the exchange life. I remember hearing about, uh, reading the story about Oswald Chambers, because I had always loved My Atmosphere is Highest. It's sort of the classic book. Everyone knows it. Uh, Oswald Chambers' complete works, by the way, trounces My Atmosphere is Highest as far as depth and quality. What a book. So if you want to find his complete works, about that thick. It's an amazing collection, okay? Just, that's just a little bonus thing for you. Uh, Oswald Chambers was in a Bible college, and he was like the premier student. He was the guy that all the staff sort of looks to and says, why can't you be more like Oswald? He was the clean-cut guy, the good moral character. He had Bible knowledge just coming out of his ears. You know, it was just oozing out of him. He knew the Scriptures, this one evangelist came in and began to speak about the life of triumph, the life of inner purity and victory. And he said, stand up. Anyone in here who really desires to go after Jesus and to find him at that depth where he would transform your inner man and give you victory in life. 
and he would indwell you and empower you. Stand up. No one moved. Suddenly, Oswald Chambers stands up. And the staff member says, just want to thank Oswald for standing up. Good example, even though, you know, he doesn't need this, but he stands up. That's a good example for all of you. Oswald Chambers looks over and says, no, I don't have this. I have something on the outside, but I don't have this on the inside. Either either I'm holding the wrong end of the stick, and I've got this whole Christian thing backwards, and it doesn't really work, because there's two options. Either this thing is all a lie, or I've got it backwards, because it's not working for me. And he began a pursuit in his life of the exchange. He found it. It turned his life upside down, and Oswald Chambers became Oswald Chambers. Hudson Taylor was just Hudson Taylor. No one would have ever known about him until the exchange. And then he became Hudson Taylor. Charles Spurgeon would have just been Charles Spurgeon. But then there was an exchange in his life. C.T. Studd would have just been C.T. Studd, the great, okay, he would have been known probably, still one of the greatest cricketer uh, players, greatest athletes in England, so maybe you would have known his name. But he became C.T. Studd, the legendary Christian man. The man I esteem, I don't care if a guy plays cricket well, but I do care about C.T. Studd. That man impacted me. Amy Carmichael became Amy Carmichael because of an exchange. D.L. Moody. You know that D.L. Moody had the largest church in Chicago before the exchange? You know that there were two women in the front row that would pray for him every day that he would find it, that he would know he even needed it? These women would sort of pester him, as the story goes. And D.L. Moody was like, look, ladies, obviously I'm fine. (laughs) Okay, I don't know what the deal is. I don't need anything beyond what I have. He's the biggest church in Chicago. Does the guy need anything else? He needed power because words will not change a generation. You need power. You need the force of God coming through your ministry. You need people to be touched and literally lifted up. William Booth, when he would preach after the exchange, would literally preach and preach and preach. He had a man under the stage, and he would call out to him, pray, pray, and he would continue to preach. He would have people in the back row literally be picked up by the Spirit of God and thrown to the altar. I'm not making it up. That is not something that most of us have as the fruit of our ministry. There is something more to be had. And throughout the ages of Christianity, they've had it. But the question is, who in this generation is willing to go after it? The exchange life, our body and blood for his. The perfected sacrifice. Hmm. I'm going to turn this off and turn it back on. Remember how I said we have to have at least one uh, clicker issue throughout the weekend? All right, you guys will have to forward me. Exodus 12, 5. Exodus 12 is talking about the Passover. A Passover meal when the Israelites are still in, in, in Egypt. God gives them a prescription for how to handle the Passover, which is not just a meal in the Old Testament that the Hebrew culture enjoyed and celebrated. I want you to realize that everything about this meal is a foreshadow of Jesus Christ. Everything. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Don't go forward. Uh, what we have is a direct link in 1 Peter to the statement in Exodus 12. Jesus is the Passover lamb. Now, I know this is very basic and elementary, and some of you are saying, okay, this is, yeah, I know this. Are you saying this is the secret? What? Wait, as this builds. You see, if some of you can see up to the front, we have a table full of bread and juice up here, which is obviously in an environment like this 
communion is awaiting. And by the way, I just want to allow any of you, because we have a lot of denominational emphases and perspectives here. We don't take communion every Sunday here at Ellerslie. And we're going to take it this morning, and I want you to feel completely free not to, okay? So I don't want you to violate conscience in any regard. I want you to respect, uh, and I want to respect, where you come from as an individual and as a churchgoer. However, we are going to do this this morning. I'm building towards an understanding of the exchanged life, which is enunciated wholly and completely in and through body and blood. So when we start to build that case, the Passover lamb becomes very, very important. You need to realize that this lamb had to be without spot and blemish. Now, as far as basic doctrinal understanding of the life of Jesus Christ, he lived a life perfectly. Perfectly righteous. The way a man ought to be, he demonstrated it. He was a lamb without spot or blemish. I think that was my clicker that just it wasn't oh, good. Heavenly requirements of the Passover lamb. So in Exodus 12, we have a breakdown, and I don't remember how many there are because I didn't number them here, but of all the requirements for the Passover lamb and how they are to keep the Passover. It must be a male of the first year, without blemish, taken out of the flock, chosen beforehand, shut up four days that it might be closely examined, killed by the people, killed at the place where the Lord put his name, Nam, killed in the evening, its blood to be shed, blood of, comma, sprinkled on lintel and doorposts, blood of, not sprinkled on threshold, not a bone broken, not eaten raw, roasted with fire, eaten with bitter herbs, eaten with unleavened bread, eaten in haste, eaten with loins girt. It's one of our favorite statements at Ellers that we're going to start a band called loins girt. <laughs> eaten with staff in hand. By the way, loins girt means the belt tightens because they always had those dress-like things like, and they were ready to run. Eaten with staff in hand, eaten with shoes on, not taken out of the house, what remained of it till morning to be burned. That is quite the list. The God's not just saying, kill a lamb, eat it. He's saying, hey, pause, you need to do this right. Because what you're doing is a foreshadow of something. And it is going to become a measurement of the lamb of sacrifice, the Messiah in the future. Everything about this was thought through with great detail by God. He was setting the stage within a culture. The entire Hebrew culture is a prophetic culture. It told of something to come. Everything about it, from the sacrifices to the temple, to the behavior of the priests, to the consecration of the priests, everything about the culture spoke of one to come. You will recognize him. He will come out of this, and he will represent it and perfectly fulfill everything from the Sabbath to the feasts to the sacrifices to the temple. Everything is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? So Jesus has been betrayed. He has been uh, questioned, thrown before different uh, ruling authorities. He's brought before Pilate. And Pilate is now interrogating him or, or examining him. Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. Pilate said unto him, what is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again unto the Jews and said unto them all, I find no fault at all. In him, no fault at all. You need to realize, remember, it needs to be a, a lamb that was examined and must be found without fault, without blemish. Jesus was actually examined it's an incredible picture of what is taking place in the New Testament that Jesus is fulfilling every dot and tittle regarding the lamb of sacrifice, the Passover lamb, the dipnon, partaking of the unblemished life. The dipnon is the Lord's Supper. That's the word for it. So the Lord's Supper, the dipnon, the Lord's dipnon, is a sacred evening meal. So one of our problems here is it's not evening. Okay, but that's what it was. It was a sacred evening meal, the Messiah's feast, symbolizing salvation in the kingdom. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, this is in John 6, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man 
and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Are you offended by that? Is that a little awkward? Uh, if you didn't have a Christian background or didn't grow up in a Christian culture, that would be cannibalism. You follow me? You know that who he's speaking to? He's speaking to good Jews. You know that Jews have a strict dietary code? They do not eat humans. And Jesus is standing there in front of them, and he has the gall to say this. He knows exactly who he's speaking to, and he knows precisely this is going to be a stumbling block to all of them. Eat my body. Drink my blood. You know how disgusting that is? You might be so used to it that it doesn't stand out to you. I'm not going to drink a man's blood. I don't even like the thought of drinking, you know, an elk's blood when you kill. Have you ever heard of that tradition? You know, the guy kills his first elk and then he has to drink the blood. Uh, Yeah, very unhealthy tradition. I'm not very excited about that tradition. How much more am I not excited about drinking a man's blood? I don't get into that sort of thing. However, my king and my Messiah says, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Whoso eats my flesh and drinks my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh, just in case they're like, well, he's talking symbolically. He goes, you think I'm talking symbolically? My flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eats my flesh and drinks my blood dwells in me, and I in him. As the living Father has sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eats me, that is so awkward, so he that eats me. It's like, could we edit this down a little? Could we fix it? This isn't going to translate well, God. And God. By the way, it didn't translate well in John 6 either. Everyone that heard this left. They loved Jesus because he was healing everyone. He was doing all this great stuff. And then he starts whipping this stuff out. They all left. Turns to his disciples and said, are you going to leave too? Uh, oh, where else will we find the words of life? We don't know where else we could go. I don't know why you're saying all this weird stuff, but, you know, could you sort of temper it a little? Could you change it up just to eat, eat me? Don't, don't say that. So he that eats me, even he shall live by me. This is that bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead. He that eats of this bread shall live forever. What do we do with that? How does that fit into a healthy understanding of the Christian life? How would you like that to be the intro to Christianity? Oh, yeah, have you eaten Jesus yet? We come up with different terminology for it. Have you drunk Jesus' blood? Tell me, have you done that yet? Because you can't really have life yet until you have. Did you drink it? Did you drink his blood? Let's rephrase that a little. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. After the same manner, also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as often as ye drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. That's an intense statement. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eats and drinks unworthily eats and drinks damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep or are dead. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world." Talking about this wonderful thing of eating the body and the blood. Symbolic bread and wine. And he has to add all this other stuff about just make sure you do it right. You need to understand how sacred 
His body and his blood is. You do not toy around with the things of Jesus Christ. Remember Ananias and Sapphira, by the way, in the book of Acts? Ananias and Sapphira are doing a wonderful thing. They sell all they have and they're going to give it to the apostles, lay it at their feet to be used for the church of Jesus Christ. And they commit themselves to give up all of this. And they even tell the church, this is what we're giving. But then they hold back some. In other words, as Peter said, they lied to the Holy Spirit. They're deceiving. Well, that doesn't sound that big, like that big of a deal because most of us have done that all our life. They literally are struck down dead in the presence of God because of it. Whoa. You see, we don't live in a time of the church when the presence of God is so near and so holy and so powerful that men and women are falling down dead that are attempting to walk in the light and live in darkness. The two cannot coexist. What we are talking about today is serious, serious business. We are talking about true Christianity. We do not mock Jesus Christ by play-acting Christianity. We're either real about it or we're not Christians. There's no in-between ground. You either are all in or all out. And this particular transaction that we're going to talk about today is the defining attribute of if you're in or out. Now, the fact of if you take it today, don't worry. You don't have to take this to be in or out. That's an issue between you and God. I'm saying how you appropriate the body and blood of Jesus Christ defines if you have life or if you don't. Partaking of the body and blood. Let's go through a few of these things from Exodus 12. It must be roasted with fire. Fire always accompanies the life of Christ. This fire of the Holy Spirit will remove all that dare stand in the way of his rule and rain. We must partake of it with bitter herbs. We must take of this life knowing what comes with it. His stigma will be our stigma. His shame will be our shame. His death will be our death. He was killed, and so will we be offered up. Christianity, I'm not going to add any fluff to Christianity. True Christianity is a direct affront to the world system, and you will be deemed the problem in this world. In this world, when true Christianity arises again, we'll labor together and unite together to extinguish the Christians from off the face of the earth. I guarantee you this will happen when true Christianity arises again. And it's not because I'm some fortune teller, I'm a prophet, no. It's because that's the pattern of truth in a hostile world system. Jesus, as his ministry was revealed, suddenly became arch enemy number one, and all the guy was doing was healing people. All the guy was doing was loving people, taking care of little children, you know, taking care of adulterous women, and making sure that they were protected. I mean, all, all sorts of good stuff. He cared for the orphan, the leper, all the wonderful humanitarian things that we would esteem. But they didn't treat him as just a good humanitarian, he was a threat because he was truth in the midst of a world of lies. And as long as that light was shining, it was exposing all the cockroaches that were attempting to hide in the shadows. So all the cockroaches get together and they conspire to tear down that light source. That's what happens to Christians. When you take of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, you identify yourself with the living God. And you become arch enemy number one against the world system. Hell suddenly finds your name on its dartboard. I don't know that I like Christianity too much. I love it. I love the adventure. I love the challenge because greater is he that is in us than he that is in this world. We're not just helpless victims to the enemy. We're like, no, I side with Jesus and then suddenly all hell turns on us and then they eat us for dinner. That isn't how it works. Christians win. Christians win. Where's the hallelujah to follow that one up? Okay. There is a time in every Christian's life where you must realize that it looks like there's defeat. You know when Jesus was hanging on a cross? It didn't look like victory. I mean, the guy is a pulp of a man. He's bloodied. He's not saying a word in his defense. He's surrounded by criminals. He looks like a criminal. All Israel is going to think he was a criminal. 
All the good stuff he did is going to be forgotten. Jesus doesn't lose. What may appear to be defeat, the death of a Christian man or woman, being thrown into prison, tortured, died. You know that they, it never is a loss? Lazarus died. This isn't good. The friend of Jesus dies. Oh, it's been rotten in that tomb for four days. Jesus doesn't lose. There's always an end to the story, and it's triumphant when God is the author of that story. Christians, we are called to give up our lives under the purposes of Jesus Christ, knowing full well that we will die in the process, but that Jesus will be victorious, his name will be spread, his kingdom will be established and advanced. He gave up his body and his blood to start this kingdom. And he asked for our body and our blood in response. Christianity is offering up the body and blood of a believer, saying it belongs to you. In exchange for your body and your blood, take mine. I just gave you in one sentence, Christianity. Not a Christianity that most people are attracted to because there's nothing in the natural man or your flesh that wants to give up your life. There's nothing in your natural man or your flesh that is interested in suffering and dying. You want to live a long, healthy life. You want to grow old and gray. And you just want to die where your last breath is when you're sleeping. Suddenly you're like, and you're gone. You didn't feel a thing. That's the way we want life. That's a dull life. You want life? Have it on God's terms. You'll find life. God knows how to make a man alive. And it comes by having a cause greater than himself, turning him outside his own skin to say, this is about something bigger than me. Suddenly that man has a reason to wake up in the morning. He has a cause to fight for, a truth to stand for. We need something to cause our knees to straighten and our spine to stiffen and our forehead to turn as flint. We need it. And God gives it to us because he built us for it. It must be eaten without leaven, without self, without a hint of impurity. The life of Christ is spotless, and its house must also be without spot or blemish. You are that house. This is serious stuff, and that's why God says to examine yourself before you take it. It doesn't mean you're a life that's a finished work. It means you're a life without shadow, without covering up of sin, without dealing with trying to hide your cockroaches. You allow the light to shine in, bring them out into the light, and then shoo them away. You come before the living God, and you say, search me and try me. Know me. And if there is anything, you get it out, and you confess it. You bring it into the light. That's what confession is. It's bringing it into the light and saying, God, you're right. This is wrong. I'm sorry. Please forgive it. Remove it. He does. He's faithful to do it. That's what it means to... Wrap yourself in the cloak of Jesus Christ. But when you're going to approach the body and the blood of Jesus, you make sure that the light is shining. We must have staff in hand, shoes on, ready to go. We must be ready to go and give of our body and blood for him. He calls us to go, and when we take of his life, we say, I'm ready to spend and be spent for thee. We must eat it all. We must not waste it but partake of it to its fullness. He's purchased us a priceless gift of life and salvation, justification, deliverance, sanctification, fortification, and the fullness of joy. How dare we stop short of the promise he has left us. May we eat it all, sparing not the smallest part. In Hebrews 4, it says, let us fear lest we fall short of the promise that has been left us to enter into his rest. Let us fear lest we fall short Every crumb from that bread that hung upon the cross, every crumb, you search the soil beneath the cross, and you say, there's another one. I want it all. Every drop, every crumb, everything that he purchased. Why? To honor him, to say it is valuable to me. What you did for me, Jesus, is everything, and I want it all. I don't want to leave any behind. Is there anything else? Show me. I'll go after it. I want the full thing to give you honor and glory because you gave up your life. Take mine.
the kingdom meal of Christ. The Lord's Dipnon is a sacred covenant meal. It signifies an exchange of life. Covenant, you know, we have the old covenant and the new. We oftentimes know it as the Old Testament and the New Testament. It means covenant. A covenant is an exchange. You can enter into covenant outside of, you know, God. For instance, enter into covenant with a wife, in my case. And when I entered into covenant with my wife, all I was, who I was, my name, my wealth, which wasn't anything, uh, my reputation, everything was given in an exchange for hers. We shared life. All that was hers became mine. All that was mine became hers. She took on my name. We exchanged rings. This is all symbolic of covenant. It's an exchange. All throughout history, covenant has been transacted. Blood covenant. Remember those, uh, the Native American Indian one where they would uh, slice open their forearm and blend the blood? You know what that would do? It would, it would form a scar on their forearm. And if any hostile uh, person was coming after them to kill them, you know what they would do? They would hold up their forearm. And if someone saw the scar, you know what it meant? You kill me, the one I'm in covenant with will hunt you down and kill you. And so it would stop them in their tracks. They're in covenant. We hold up the scars. We hold up the blood of Jesus. Stops the enemy in his tracks. You touch me, my God will squash you. That's what I like. I, I always picture David at, in the Valley of Elah against Goliath. And I picture David not seeing Goliath, just a 12-foot, you know, he-man. What I see is God standing above David saying, just tell me when. That's a man in covenant. A man in covenant knows that he has all of God because he's given God all of him. Covenant is an exchange. And in the exchange, we oftentimes weigh what we are giving up. Think about it. Right now, inside of you, you're thinking, I know that's a lot to give up. All of me? All my future? All my dreams? All my ambitions? All my abilities? All my wealth? I mean, I've got a big bank account. All? All. Now, why in the world are you measuring it that way? You're looking at it through a very weird vantage point, and that's you. And you are skewed. Because think about this. Get outside of yourself. You know what you begin to realize? Who's getting the raw end of the deal? You are giving up your little ridiculous life in exchange for God's life. Who's getting the better end? You are. All that God is, all of God's wealth, all of God's strength, all of God's power, all of God's might at the disposal of your life. Okay, and you're actually weighing your options? Why do we do this? Why do we hesitate? It's the principle of sin and selfishness. We want to hold on to life on our terms. We want to be in control. I have no idea why we're wired this way. It's ridiculous. How do we get out of it? Lord Jesus, save us from this body of death. Wrench us away from the wreckage. Get us out so that we can just follow what is reasonable before the light of heaven. All of God is being made available to you, and you're hesitating. My life for his. My body for his. My blood for his. My name for his. My glory for his. It's Christianity. There's no other version of Christianity other than that. I don't care if you've never heard that statement before. That's just the truth of Scripture. The truth of Scripture asks a man to come and die. The truth of Scripture asks a man to deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow. The truth of Scripture says, as long as you live, Christ can't live in you. You must die so that Christ can live. The secret to Christianity is a man dying. I know it's a strange secret. It's like, hey, guys, I have a secret for you. You need to die. It's like, thank you, a wonderful idea. No one gravitates towards that as the solution for their life. Oh, I need to die? Can I, how, how do I do this? None of us want to die. You ever seen a man on an on a operating table fighting for life? You know how vigorous and feisty life is? It does not go easily. 
which is a good thing. Otherwise, all of us would have faded in the stretch a long time ago. We are vigorous creatures. Even the weakest among us still have a fight. We're like a bulldog on an ankle. We do not let go easily. And God is coming to us saying, I have the solution for you. But for you to get it, you need to die. You need to let go of your life. You need to give it up wholly and fully. Your life, your body, your blood, your name, and, my, and your glory. It's not about you. And it will never be about you. And when you give it up, you don't get it back. Well, wait a minute here. That's a little addition you didn't tell me before, Eric. Why is it that we negotiate and we say, how about I give you my life now? I'll try it out. I'll surrender my life to you. We'll see how things work. But we have a little disclaimer, a little asterisk in there, you know, that says at the bottom, and if it doesn't work, I get my life back. That's not Christianity. Christianity believes that God is who God says he is. And if he is truly your creator, if he is truly your Messiah and your rescuer, without condition, you hand over your existence to him and say, rescue me. You take it, I won't take it back. Now, you'll struggle many times in your life, and you'll find yourself waking up in the morning, and you've taken back your life. It's an incredible propensity that we have. You know what you do immediately? It's yours. I wake up every day and give my life to Jesus Christ. You die daily. We have an amazing ability to come back to life. Jesus must have our life, because if we're alive, Jesus isn't. Christianity functions. It's sort of like waking up in the morning, dumping your engine, trying to drive down the road. Stick the engine back in. You cannot live without it. His body represents untarnished righteousness. Now, I want not to think of the body of Christ here for a second. I know that's hard for those of us that have grown up in the church because when you hear his body, you immediately think of the church, which is healthy. That's a good doctrinal perspective to have. But I want you to realize... We're talking about his physical body, his actual being. His body represents untarnished righteousness. He lived as a man ought to live. He did it right. It was demonstrated in and through his body. The way a man ought to be. It's the temple of God. He actually says that when he says, you tear down this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. The temple of which he spoke was his body. He was talking about the temple, the very dwelling place of God. But the temple of what he was speaking about was the fulfillment to the earthly temple, and it was the temple of God Almighty, the very real person of Jesus Christ, because God intended the body of Christ, the church, to become the dwelling place of God. That's Jesus. Jesus is the dwelling place of God. That's the body of Christ. Now, again, try and separate that from just the congregation of believers. That's Jesus. We then become the body. How? By exchanging our body for his, and we become the body of Christ, the very dwelling place of God Almighty. So we're talking about the body of Jesus, not the congregation of believers here real quick, even though you're going to see the parallel and how it all works. His body is impervious to sickness and disease. This man was something else. You don't see Jesus hacking away. You don't see him laying in bed sick. The guy walked through crowds. No one could touch him. Jesus was strong. He was able. He was equipped for the task. His body is the perfect picture of glory, the divine enunciation of the kingdom of heaven on planet earth. The enemy cannot lay a hand on his body. Well, then how did he end up getting crucified? It wasn't because the enemy caught him. It was because God gave himself up. God gave himself for us. The enemy didn't take him. Huge distinction between the two. You, when you become the body of Christ, become all that he is. This is the exchange. It is strength and it is majesty strolling upon the earth and the stage of time once again. His body is not vulnerable to fear, not susceptible to lust, and impervious to the blight of selfishness. We must eat of this body. When Jesus is saying, you must eat of my body, he is talking about that body. We must partake of the Messiah's feast, the kingdom meal. 
We must ingest into our very being the power of this body, the strength and fortitude of this body. We must allow Jesus to enter as the rider on the white steed and claim our body as his own, setting up his kingdom according to the pattern of his love and glory. Our body must become his body. We are no longer our own. We are bought with a price. Remember Ezekiel and God causing him to eat the roll, jamming it into his mouth, causing his belly to digest it, you must eat of the roll. You must eat of the word of God made flesh. You must ingest God. You must allow him in. You must enable, open up that passageway to enable God to come on in as the triumphant Lord and King and to rule within your existence. That's what it means to eat of him. It means to take him in. Jesus is digestible. It's a strange thought. I realize that. But the word of God is supposed to come in and then be worked over in our digestive system, but on the spiritual side. And then it's supposed to filter through and change everything from our blood, our bloodstream, everything to our digestive tract, everything to our mind. Everything about us is overhauled and we become different. And these hands are no longer our hands. They belong to Jesus Christ and they do the work of the kingdom. These eyes now look the way Jesus would look, what he would look at. They close their eyes to the things he wouldn't look at. We have mind that is different, and it now thinks the thoughts of God. It esteems the things of God. It thinks on these things, things that are pure and noble and upright and good and of good report. It is different. Our heart now feels for the lost and the dying, but before we could care less. We're different. Why? Because the living God has entered in. We must partake of this. We must ingest into our very being the power of this body, the strength and fortitude of this body. Skip down to the bottom. We are no longer our own. Our body must become his body. We are no longer our own. We are bought with a price. Only be sure that thou eat not the blood, for the blood is the life, and thou may not eat the life with the flesh. Okay, this is the stipulation given to the Jews in the Old Testament. Do not eat the blood. You have to get the blood out. Do not eat the blood with the body. Jesus then in John 6 is the exact opposite. What, what's going on? Everything Jesus says to truly be canon must match perfectly and be measured against the Old Testament. What's he doing? The reason God stipulates in the Old Testament not to eat or to drink of the blood is because the blood is sacred. And there is only, the blood means life, by the way. And there is only one life that we on earth are ever to partake of, and that is the life of God. There's only one. You are never to drink the blood, except in one situation, when it's the blood of the Messiah, when it's the life of Jesus Christ, when it's the life of your rescuer, then you must. The reason there's a prohibition in the Old Testament is to prepare them for the real thing. His blood is the sacred life of God, the spirit of holiness, the power of God into salvation. His blood is life. And we must partake of no other life but the life of our God. His life is almighty, all-powerful, without weakness, without vulnerability. It is perfectly fortified and never failing in strength. We must drink this blood. We must partake of the Messiah's feast, the kingdom meal. We must ingest into our very being the authority and majesty of this blood, the healing power of this blood, we must allow our blood, our life, to be replaced with his all-powerful, perfect, unblemished version. We must feed on this life, drink of this life, and find our soul satisfaction in this life alone. As spotless lambs, we are born anew in order to be offered up. Jesus pronounced that his body was not only the Passover lamb, but also the temple of God. Since we become his body by partaking of the kingdom meal of Christ... Then we, therefore, by virtue of covenant, become as he was, lambs unto slaughter and the temple of God. When we partake of his body, we become as he is and as he was back then. In other words, what we understand of him historically and what he is now. He was the temple of God, the very dwelling place of the Spirit of God. And so are you to be. And he was a lamb of sacrifice. And so are you. Your body and blood are now being set apart for the purposes of the kingdom of heaven. And God 
has the right and the authority to spend your body and blood any way he sees fit. Here's what I want to clarify. The enemy cannot spend your body and blood any way he sees fit. Only God can spend you. You are not vulnerable to the harassment of the enemy. The enemy can't just pick you off and harass you and undermine you and strip you clean. You belong to Jesus. And just like the enemy couldn't touch Jesus, he can't touch you as long as you remain in Jesus Christ. But Jesus Christ has full authority to give you when it's necessary. This is the privilege of every Christian. We beg God to be the one that he would choose. I gave a message a few weeks ago called the Etceteras, and I basically was referring to C.T. Studd because that was his organization of the missionaries that were nameless missionaries. No one even knew who they were, and when they died in the mission field in Africa and interior Africa, their names would never be known, but they did it unto Jesus Christ and no man. The Etceteras is what they were known as. And the Etceteras, C.T. Studd's entire mentality is so different than ours. When he found out about interior Africa, he was 52 years old at the time, and he was sickly. He could hardly function. The the medical board would not pass him and enable him to go. He'd been sickly because he'd spent time in interior China and in India, and all the diseases had hit him, and his body had worn down to a a nub. 52 years old, he hears about the, the, the lost and the dying that had never heard about Jesus. Most of Africa was still lost. Never once hearing anything about Jesus. No missionary had ever gone in there. And guess what he was saying to God? Please. I know I hardly have any strength and I know I have hardly any energy. I know I can hardly function in life. I want it. Give me the job. Give it to me. God, don't overlook me. You know what I care about and that's your glory and that's the lost. I want to see them saved for your sake. Is not the lamb that was slain worthy of the reward of his suffering. Give the job to me. And God says, you get it. C.T. Studd, the age of 52, without any missionary board to back him up because he could not pass the medical exams, goes on his own. With all the disease, no white man could live beyond five days, they would say, in interior Africa. He lived there 20 years and turned the central part of Africa upside down and on its head. Worldwide missions was sparked because of C.T. Studd and his willingness to go. But it wasn't just his willingness. It was the fact that he begged God for the opportunity. Is there anything in you that is begging God to be the one that he chooses for the toughest, most difficult tasks? No one in their right mind would do that, would they? Not a typical American. We don't need to be typical Americans anymore. We need to be Christians We need to be the way God intended his children to be wired. That we actually think heavenly thoughts. That we want the most dangerous missions. God, choose me. Please, don't look elsewhere. Choose me. Amy Carmichael, when she was going into India, longed. It was sort of like, I don't know that I want any other missionaries to be sent here. I want this territory. I want to be the one privileged. Isn't that a strange thought? It's like just a deep desire to be the one that God would choose for the most difficult, challenging thing. She rescued girls being sold into slave prostitution and risked her life. She rescued over a thousand of them. Death-defying ventures. She wanted it. Since we become his body by partaking of the kingdom meal, then we therefore, by virtue of covenant, become as he was, lambs unto slaughter and the temple of God. Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you, as my Father hath sent me, even so I send you. Yea, for thy sake are we killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. That's a good uh, refrigerator quote for all of you. You want to have an encouraging uh, scripture up on your refrigerator, you know, just to remind you of the wonder of serving Jesus Christ? There's a good one for you. Untouchable. Understand the impervious barrier between you and the enemy. Jesus has given us, through Calvary and the power of the Holy Spirit, the amazing gift of fortification. In other words, the enemy is powerless to touch us if we dwell in the life of Jesus Christ and not in our own life. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. A thousand shall fall at thy side and ten thousand at thy right hand. 
but it shall not come nigh thee. There shall no evil befall thee, neither shall any plague come nigh thy dwelling. For he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways, and they shall bear thee up in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. Becoming his body, bearing his infamy and his glory. Most of us have a tendency to only focus on bearing his infamy when I speak like this. You know, I bring up this message, and all of us are so having a tough time getting past this whole infamy, slaughter thing. It's like, hey, I, I don't know about that. Take out infamy in that line for a second. Becoming his body, bearing his glory. The beauty, the majesty, the triumph, the love, the compassion. Everything that makes Jesus so amazing. Everything that we worship and adore. That we could be bearers of it. That we could bear it in and through our actions, our attitudes, our words. And this world could taste and see how good our God is. Because you are a yielded vessel. You have become his body. And now you are a bearer of his glory. Yes, you also get to bear his infamy. You get to bear his scars. You get to bear his sufferings. You know what? You study Christian history, and I don't hear any complaints from the men and women of God throughout the ages. In fact, they delight. They sing songs of praise because they get to identify in his sufferings. We need to learn from them. When St. Ignatius was told he was going to be fed to the lions... You know what he did? Something very opposite of what most of us would do. He rejoiced. This is the disciple of John, the apostle. He rejoiced. And he said, my salvation has finally come. And he called the lions his friends because they were the ones that were going to deliver him into the presence of the one he loved. Okay, what does that guy have? He has a true perspective. He knows what it means to be a Christian, to live as Christ, to die, that's gain. There's no loss. There's no downside. Cheerio and milk. You push you under the milk, bloop, you come right back up. There's nothing that can stop you. It's constant. It's forward. It's advancing. It's victorious. This is the exchange. God is offering his life. He is offering the power of his spirit to come and actually live inside of you as a believer. Here's the caveat. You give up your life to get it. There's a little exchange that needs to take place. We want the benefits of God without the cost. The cross is the passageway to the resurrection life. You can't get to the empty tomb without going through the cross. You have to die to get to the life. That's the principle of heaven. God is making it clear to his body, through his word, I need you out of the way so that you can live. I can live in you. It is no longer I who live, says Paul, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in this body, I live by the faith of the Son of God. Paul lives but not the same way he lived before. He now lives by a fuel source of God. God living in him, empowering him, moving him, walking in him, living in him, loving through him. And that's what causes a man to be stoned and brought outside the city, come back to life, and march right back in. You need something bigger than you to pull that off. D.L. Moody would never be known today if those two women hadn't pursued the depths of the exchange life for him. He transacted with Jesus Christ. And he, I remember him saying, his doctrine didn't change. But suddenly there was power in his ministry. There was love in and out of his life. And D.L. Moody turned the world ablaze. The great men and women of God throughout the ages ran smack into this covenant. And they realize this is what changes a man. Not just what you know, but the fact that the God of the universe now lives in you. Communion is not what saves you. Drinking juice 
and eating bread are not what save you. It's an inner work of yielding your life to Jesus and allowing the merits and the purchase of the cross and the person of Jesus to come in and to do the work of the cross, to identify in his death that when he died, you died in him. It's an inner work and an inner response that brings about heaven to earth. This is an external declaration to the heavenlies. This, just like baptism, is an external declaration. It's a proclamation saying, I no longer live. My body, my blood has been exchanged, and now I'm the body of Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in this body. All hell tremble. All heaven rejoice. For I remember the death of my Lord. And now I share in his life. Communion. When we take communion, you have to imagine. It's like the rider on the white steed. Remember in Revelation 19? He has crowns upon his head, a sword protruding out of his mouth. His clothing or his vesture is dipped in blood. And on his thigh, you see a tattoo. It reads, King of kings and Lord of lords. And so communion is like opening your mouth, your soul, your spirit, and having that king come in and take his place. That's what communion is. It's the body, the life, the power Everything of Jesus Christ entering in and claiming what is rightfully his. And here's what you say in communion. God, you see my body. It's no longer my own. It belongs to you. You break it any way you see fit. God, here's my blood. It's now yours. My life is not my own. It belongs to you. In any way you see fit to spend it, it's your business. I am yours. You are mine. And your banner over me is love. Thank you for listening to this message by Eric Ludy, pastor at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. More information can be found on our website, www.ellersley.com Again, that website is www.ellersley.com Know that we are cheering you on as Christ cultivates his set-apart life within you.